Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hello, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have with us Michael Saxe, the CEO of Dandelion Energy, and we're going to talk about all things geothermal. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. So let's dive right in, since you like to go underground, it seems. <laughs> talk to us about, well, let's start with Dandelion. You just got a cash infusion of $70 million of financing in November. Tell us what that's going to enable you to do. You've uh, connected 1,000 geothermal homes in the New England area. Uh, give us the backstory of your company, how you founded it, and what this financing will allow you to accomplish. Yeah, so uh, Dandelion was uh, born within Google X. Um, and I should say, while I'm very happy to be uh, the CEO, I'm not the founder. Kathy Hanoon's the founder, and she's leading our product efforts. And really, we became focused on sustainable heat. So if you think about what we need to decarbonize, um, heating is really a challenge because so much of our heating is, comes from burning natural gas. A lot of homes burn fuel oil. And so really, we got focused on that problem. How can we solve that problem? Uh, that problem, of course, happens to be in the news a lot these days with everything going on in Europe. And we got focused on geothermal. Geothermal, and when I say geothermal, I'm talking not about the deep uh, utility scale, you know, like find a pocket in the Earth's magma, but just, you know, something you can install in an individual backyard. So let's let's stop right there and talk about the universe of geothermal. There are companies like Ormat, I'm sure you you know, uh, that are in 30 countries. Uh, they have projects around the United States where they tap into underground heat. Think of uh, Yellowstone's geysers. And they have in Steamboat an 84-megawatt production facility. They have um, another one that has 143 megawatts. California is number one in that kind of utility-scale geothermal. Yet you're focused on New England, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, which is not hot the way the out west is. So you go way more shallower. Talk about the universe of potential from a 30,000-foot level of the utility scale versus residential, what could be accomplished. Sure. So <clears throat> I would think about it... Uh, I really think they're not in competition with each other. Uh, you know, utility scale is providing a source of electricity that's sustainable, and we need more of that. What we're doing is providing a source of heating and cooling that is enormously efficient. And so our approach, utility scale would need to be really in places where you have more volcanic activity. So that's why it's going to be more out west than New England would seem to be a strange place for it. Um, whereas residential geothermal, which really is uh, another term for it is ground source heat pumps. Residential geothermal can be installed anywhere. It doesn't matter what the volcanic activity way under the ground is. You know, we go about 350 feet deep um, 
which by geological standards isn't very far. Uh, and so, you know, it can work in New England. You really go that deep? I thought it was much more shallower. So you can go, you don't have to go so deep. You could go, once you're below four feet, you're getting to that constant temperature of about 50 to 55 degrees. But the challenge when is then if you, you can do it horizontally, but then you need a lot of space. And so we go deeper in order to make it available for homes that have smaller yards. Uh, so, you know, we don't need, um, we, we don't need a home to have an acre or two. We can do a pretty typical suburban home and you just drill straight down. And once we're done, uh, you never know it's there. So I assume it's just geographic accident that you pick those three states. Maybe it's where you live. Could you do this for every homeowner? And B, what's the business challenge for some for you to convince somebody who has uh, natural gas or electric fired or oil fired to totally de-plug and come to you? Uh, do they have to wait till their equipment fails, or can you make a business proposition that works at the at the get go? Yeah, the way we think about it is it's uh, it's pretty similar to how uh, to convincing someone to switch from a combustion engine to uh, to an electric vehicle. So if you just bought it, our odds of convincing you are pretty low. But if you have a sense that, oh, you know, my car is getting older, in this case, you know, my HVAC system is getting older, I'm going to need to do something eventually. Those are customers who we tend to find, um, you know, are pretty receptive. And then, you know, the other thing that we see a lot of is uh, customers particularly around this time of year when the heating systems are turned on, uh, notice how much they're paying, uh, have a sense of frustration with the volatility of the prices, um, and that becomes another reason that they're willing to consider us. So so here's um, Heat Pump 101. If I was to go with you, would you rip out my air conditioner and furnace and put new equipment in? Would the initial cash outlay be comparable, less or more? And what's the payback scenario? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we'd rip out your furnace and air conditioner, uh, put in a ground source heat pump that would do both. Um, the cash outlay, af so the cash outlay before incentives uh, is meaningful. It'd be about 40, 45,000 bucks for a typical sort of 2,000, 2,500 square foot home. After incentives, uh, and there's a combination of both utility incentives and federal incentives, it looks more like twenty-two thousand uh, bucks, and that's going to usually lead to a payback somewhere in the you know seven, eight, nine-year range. Okay. So, when did you start, and how hard was it to get to um, one thousand installations? And what's your forecast for the next two to five years? Yeah. So. Um, we started in 2017, and the easy thing in this company has always been the demand. Uh, we've always seen terrific demand. Uh, the hardest thing has been the coordination of uh, you know the various trades, and then really building the expertise in drilling. Um, and that's one of the things that has gone great recently, in particular. Uh, so last, well, I'm treating. 2022, like it's last year already. Uh, in 2022, you know, we will have installed about 400 homes. Uh, so really, the rate is increasing quite a bit. 
Um, and then going forward, you know, it's really kind of a wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, you know, we're just, it's about buying drills, training drillers, matching them with uh, HVAC installers. And then, of course, uh, you know, being able to find customers who are interested in the product. But we haven't seen any limits there just yet. So that $70 million round of financing that closed in November, my understanding is the source of that funding was a, some, a company involved in home building. Does it, is the business proposition different for retrofitting somebody versus getting out there and, and creating new homes with this technology at the get-go? Is it significantly less expensive to, to build it this way from the start? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so Lennar, uh, largest home builder in the U.S., was uh, one of two leads. The other was NGP, a uh, terrific energy-focused firm. Um, and, you know, really, like, yes, it's easier when you're doing it from the start because, as you might imagine, uh, you know, little things like... Um, you know, having to take a heat pump down basement stairs and like putting it into a crawl space can be much more difficult than just putting it in when the home is not even fully framed yet. Um, and by the same token, when you have to think about, you know, people's shrubs and, uh, you know, making sure the driveway isn't isn't affected, uh, you know, that that's a lot harder than when you can just go drill a hole, move 30 feet, 40 feet over, drill another hole and keep going. So yeah, it's cheaper when we do it from the beginning. So let's talk about magnitude of cheapness. <laughs> if it costs 40,000 to retrofit, what does it cost to put one of these into a new home? And is it, you know, this podcast is run by NREL. Is there new technology coming out that offers the potential that just like solar, this is going to experience a cost declining curve? Yeah, so we think that the cost in new construction is going to be somewhere between uh, you know forty and fifty percent less, so meaningfully less. Now it's important to note that that's true when you're getting production scale, right? Uh, so you know you're doing a hundred, two hundred homes at once, uh, and then. I am very bullish that we're going to see uh, meaningful cost reductions through technology improvement. We're working on a lot of them ourselves, and that's part of our mandate with this new financing round. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Do you have a lab, or, or do you have grants from DOE or NREL, or how is this working? Yeah, so we have um, we have a team in Boston. Uh, they did not get to meet uh Prince William and Princess Kate, but they're in the same facility. Uh, and, um, you know, we've been working on a lot of things around improving the cost of the heat pump and also improving the efficiency of the of the ground exchange. Uh, and really, when I say that, what I'm talking about is the less ground loop we have to install, the cheaper geothermal becomes. Uh, so that's something we're really focused on as well. Uh, and we are looking for um, you know, ways to collaborate with the government. There's a lot of focus on heat pumps right now, uh, and so we're, we're hoping that we can be a part of that. So uh, this thought occurs to me. I thought I'd run it by you. Is there any synergy for you to get involved with this technology and deployment of residential solar and energy storage? Is there a, a three-way marriage that we can affect here? A hundred percent. Like, so... You know, the, the hard part is bringing it all together in one place, like just from like a sort of, you know, getting all the businesses to have, uh, you know, 
be in the same place at the same time. But all three systems work beautifully together. So solar is creating electricity. Storage, obviously, is storing it. Ground source heat pumps or geothermal are consuming electricity. They're part of electrifying the home. So it takes electricity to run this, and solar could be that source. That's right. That's right. And we've done some modeling on that, and uh, we actually think it's a great deal for customers because solar is a cheaper source of energy, and so that means your heat pump is going to cost less to run. And the payback will be faster. Exactly. So is Lennar looking at this triple play? So we've been talking about it with them. Uh, you know, the challenge is, uh, you know, we're we're just all trying to get things going together. So like solar for them is important in California. We expect that geothermal is going to be more important in, say, Colorado or Minnesota to start. Uh, and so we're just going to try to get some geothermal communities going and then take it from there. So talk to me a second about we talked about incentives there's the uh, Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. What specifically does that offer for geothermal residential heat pumps? So the Inflation Reduction Act did a number of things uh, that are really good for us. So, you know, it took the investment tax credit and for first parties, increased it from 26% to 30% and extended it for 10 years. So that's you or me, just you know, paying cash or getting a loan, installing something in our home. The other thing it did was it took the ITC for third parties. So this would be the basis you know, of a loan, sorry, of a lease. And this is something the solar industry has used for years. It had been 10% for geothermal. It took it up to 30%. So we now think that a lease model is going to be very attractive for consumers. And then the third thing, which wasn't intended solely for us, but is important, is the 10% bonus ITC for domestic manufacture is going to apply to geothermal. So that only applies in that third-party lease scenario. But uh, that means that that third-party lease ITC is now 40%. So we think that's going to make a lease really attractive. And we also think that's going to be something that uh, is going to allow us to get a lot closer to providing heating as a service. And uh, that's something we're really interested in doing. Talk about how a lease would work. Would you be the party that initiates it? Could you team up with a natural gas utility that may be threatened by your business model, may want to join in with you? Yeah, so... you know, it's early days and we're trying to figure it out, but I think um, I think all those things are in play. The way we see it is the ground loops look a lot like a utility asset. They look a lot like, you know, pipes that are transmitting natural gas. Um, we think it makes sense for a homeowner to pay for that over time. And then with the increased ITC, uh, we think that that's going to be more affordable than a loan. And that consumers are going to like it because it means someone's responsible for making sure the heating and cooling is working well in your house. So how how might a lease work if it's from you or from a utility? I basically would not have to make the $40,000 outlay. A, a third party would do it, and they would uh, potentially say to me, you'll save 10% a month on heating your home. The parallel here is solar. So the solar industry has um, 
about 30% of solar systems are leased. And, <clears throat> and the idea is that a lease is going to both cost a little less uh, just due to the way it works. And then you have a third party that's responsible for making sure it's functioning. Um, and, you know, that's basically how it would work here that uh, we'd say, look, you whether it's just the ground loops or the ground loops and the heat pump, you know, that's that's leased. You pay monthly for that. Um, you're going to have a predictable energy bill. And then there's going to be a service company that's going to be responsible for making sure that your home's performing as uh, as you hoped. And might this, like uh, solar, be a situation where the third-party dentists, doctors, lawyers that have money they want to invest to reap the tax benefits would put the capital forward and the entity would, would go out and, and deploy the asset? That's right. I think it, everything we're thinking about here, in, in a lot of ways, our business is uh, residential solar applied to another setting. And so all these things, including those components, uh, we imagine working in a very similar way. So what if, if you've done some modeling and forecasting, how long will it take before 50% of the homes in America are heated with geothermal heat pumps. It, will it be our lifetime, a century, 10 years? What's your best estimate? Uh, so I would say that I would hope that it is within our lifetime. Uh, and I think it, what it really is going to depend upon is... Uh, Just to be precise, that half of the homes in America? Or what's your hope? Yeah, so our hope is that we think geothermal is a terrific fit for any part of the country that has hot summers and cold winters so that's about that's about 33 states um and we think so we think that that's about the market potential and we see adoption really depending more than anything uh the thing that really unlocked solar was the ease and availability of labor to install solar panels um, and we think that as geothermal gets easier to install and there's more labor available that's skilled in it, that's what's really going to drive the acceleration. And you know, that's the big limiter at the same time. Like That's the thing we need to grow. Michael, one thought that has occurred to me as I talk to you here, I'm sitting on a cul-de-sac mm -hmm. um, in Kansas, rural suburban Kansas City. And there's a, an island in the middle and it's surrounded by eight homes. Can you come in in a situation like that and put in one huge geothermal sink and then tap in the eight homes if we all elect to, to go with you? A hundred percent we could. And uh, we've been experimenting with some utilities in the Northeast about finding some cul-de-sacs where we might do that. Uh, they're very eager because they are also motivated by cutting off some leaky natural gas lines and fully electrifying those homes. Which uh, just a few years ago, here in Kansas City and elsewhere, was a huge problem with gas lines exploding because of aged pipeline infrastructure. Yeah, I think it's an enormous opportunity because the utilities would prefer not to invest in what they view as, or some of them view as uh, potentially stranded assets. And uh, the hardest part is just getting everyone to agree at the same time that we're going to make the switch. Let's... Uh talk about your journey for a second. Uh, when we first met, you were uh, at Opower, where you were creating new interfaces between customers and utilities to, to 
promulgate adoption of renewable and energy efficiency technologies. You were there seven years and seven months, according to LinkedIn, where you worked on marketing and business development. What lesson did you take away from that work? Well, a lot. Uh, I didn't know anything about really anything before I got to O-Power, but um, I would say a few things. Like, First, um, it is easier than people think to work with state regulators. That was something I got pretty good at and uh, learned a lot about. And I, I find that um, when people think about regulation, they think about the federal government first and the federal government's enormously important, but everybody knows that and everybody spends a lot of time there and the states uh, play a huge role and are eager to help companies figure out how to work in their markets. So that's been something uh, I've learned a fair bit about. I've learned a fair bit. I would like to think about um, you know building companies with great teams. And, you know, one of the most important things is hiring in a company. And I think we were lucky at Opower, or not lucky, but uh, deliberate about being really good at that. And I've tried to bring that forward. And, uh, you know, those things have a multiplicative effect. And then, um, you know, maybe a third thing I'd mention is, uh, you know, living with and appreciating the ups and downs of the climate space. Uh, you know, O-Power started as clean tech, then it became vertical SaaS. The business didn't change. It was just what the market wanted. And so we changed what it was called. Uh, you know, we're at a similar moment here where climate tech is hot. I expect climate tech may not be hot in the future, not because the problem's going to go away, but because investors, uh, you know, follow trends and uh, things may change for them. And so, you know, just making sure that we're really thinking about building a great business that can stand on its own two legs, you know, with or without a sexy label. So as I recall, the, the secret sauce of O-Power was trying to incent consumers to give a fig about efficiency and sustainability. Where do you think the American consumer is today, post-COVID, in the and all the talk about climate change. Is the environment changing? Is the American public hungry for what you and others are offering? Do you sense a change in the, out there? The, the thing I sense, I, I think efficiency is still a tough sell because I think people don't really know what a kilowatt or a kilowatt hour is or a BTU. And you know, there's just too much fog uh, in the details. But I think there's a strong and growing emotional sense that people want to be sustainable and they want to make investments that are going to speak to their values. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be like a slam dunk. It just has to be something that's not foolish to do. And we see that all the time. The best example I can give you is during the first few years of Dandelion, the way we found most customers was via was via Facebook. We would just put a little ad in front of them as they traveled around the web. Now, most customers come to us through Google AdWords. Well, why does that matter? It just says that customers are looking for something. Um, doesn't mean that, you know, they've made a decision or that, you know, they're all in on a particular value prop, but they're, they're thinking about it in a way that they weren't before. And, uh, I, I hope that's going to continue. Um, last question. 
you're a graduate of Am Amherst. 17 years ago, you uh, graduated from Harvard Law School. Um, you've been an entrepreneur in residence at the New Enterprise Associates in D.C. The energy space has historically been very stable, kind of conservative, not courting innovation. It's basically been a same business model and technology for a century. How is that changing? And uh, given your background, what what do you find most appealing and challenging about the work you're doing now day to day? Yeah, um, I think what's changing is there is there are so many talented, ambitious people thinking about energy problems, and uh, and it's become a place where entrepreneurship is welcomed in a way that perhaps it wasn't some time ago, uh, or, or at least it's more welcomed. And so, you know, I think that's incredibly exciting to see. Like, you know, we're lucky to be invested in by Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And if you walk around and talk to, you know, the various founders of and executives at their companies, it's just incredible. Like, the, the ambition and the challenges people are taking on. And so, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, what kind of, you know, what that means, it, to me, it means that like, there's just, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be harder, right? It's going to be harder than say software businesses because it exists in the real world. And so you have to sort of accept that and embrace that as part of the journey. Um, but what I love about it is it matters, right? Like, I think it really matters what we do about energy and sustainability over the next decade in particular. And so you're always looking for sources of energy when you, no pun intended, when you're doing hard things um, and seeing other people feeling that pull as well uh, is, is really encouraging. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Marty. Thank you for listening to Grid Talk, and thanks to our guest, Michael Saxe, who's the CEO of Dandelion Energy. We are particularly eager to hear your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov, and we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.